Eric Herrera joined the army to be a bomb hunter. Let that phrase sink in for just a second. My guest on this episode of Unbeatable showed up to a recruiter's office at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And not only did he join the military, not only was he saying by showing up in the recruiter's office that I'm willing to go overseas, he joined to become a combat engineer and writes a book called A Bomb Hunter's Story. You're gonna hear Eric's explosive story. Do you like what I just did there? The word explosive, bomb hunter? Come on, you guys got that one. You're gonna hear his explosive story of what life was like in Iraq during that first combat deployment. You're gonna hear Eric tell about what this most tragic moment of his life, get this, Christmas Day 2006 was like, and how that day has stuck with him for the next 15 years. Here's my guest, Eric Herrera on Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for agreeing to be with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Uh, Thank you for having me. Man, it's great to talk to you. I've been reading up a little bit about you and about your background. Uh, Yeah, um, as I'm I live in the Chicago area and uh, been out of the army for about, oh, it's already been 12 years now. Already wow. Been so, uh, yeah, it's time kind of goes by fast when yeah. you're, uh, when you're having fun, right? <laughs> okay. I, I just got to know you're in the windy city for those of you who are not familiar with Chicago and it's the middle of winter. Tell everybody what it feels like outside today in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I get zero degrees in the morning. I get 40 in the afternoon and then it goes back to zero. So it'll snow and then the snow will go away by the end of the night. So it's, awesome. you get a couple different weathers during the day during Chicago. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is there's not a lot of families at the park today in Chicago. I'm sure there are. Oh, because people from Chicago are a little bit crazy and they get out in the zero degree weather is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, they take their dogs out and kids go play out in the snow. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm down here in the sunny south, and it's not that warm, but at least it's sunny. So thanks for joining me all the way from Chicago. You're welcome. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about how you ended up in the military and how you ended up as a combat engineer. But I want to kind of roll the tape backwards a little bit, rewind, and talk about school. Um finishing high school and go into Northern Illinois University and tell us a little bit about those first couple of months in college. What was that like for you? Uh, yeah, I played sports all my life. I played four years basketball at high school. All so right. I, I was an athlete. Um, I had a little trouble getting into school. So Northern Illinois accepted me. Um, I ended up rooming with my best friend, which was kind of mistake number one. (laughs) And, um, so we really just kind of went to school for like maybe the first like couple of months. And then we started having parties at fraternities and I really wasn't caring about school anymore. I was more cared about the party atmosphere. I ended up getting kicked out of Northern Illinois, but, uh, I had no, my entire life, I had no uh, desire to ever join the military. 
But what was funny is that the building that I lived in at Northern, it was building C, uh, floor number four, so C4. Oh, so nice. basically that should have been a, <laughs> been a wake-up call. That yeah. would become a for, for anybody who's never been in the military, Composition 4 or C4 is the Army's, well, the DOD's uh, nomenclature, the name that they use for explosives. It's only fitting that this combat engineer who dealt with explosives the whole time he was in the Army would live in dorm C4. And by the way, I'm just thinking about hundreds, not no exaggeration, hundreds of guys that I know that left high school, were very talented athletes or brilliant students in high school, went to college, didn't really have mom or dad or anybody else holding them accountable, and they ended up with a higher blood alcohol level than a GPA. Was that you? Um, I had the same GPA as the guys from Animal House. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen that old movie Animal House um, where this fraternity uh, gets in, to uh, academic, double academic uh, probation or something like, I don't even remember what it was called. Double secret probation. Yeah, double secret probation. There it is. Thank you. Um, how long did you spend at Northern Illinois? Uh, two semesters. And um, since I failed kind of most of the classes, I had to go to summer school. And I tried to sign up for summer school. I went with my mother to a community college. And uh, they wouldn't let me register. They said I have to contact um, Northern or my advisor. And I had him on speakerphone. I said, hey, uh, what's what's the problem here? What's going on? He says, well, uh, did you get my email? I'm like, no. I'm like, well, we had to uh, expel you from school because you didn't uh, keep up the GPA that you were required to. So this is on speakerphone. And my mother's listening yeah. to this at the same time. But that was a fun conversation uh, for mom to hear. Actually, there was, yeah, and there was really no conversation the hour drive back home. And um, my mom, we got home. My mom says, you know what, I'm going to go for a bike ride. By the time I get back, you better figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And I had no idea what I was going to yeah. do. Did you tell her, my, hey, mom, go for a long ride because this is going to take a few minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh but my roommate, my friend, he ended up joining the military about a month before this ever happened. So he had recruiters come to the dorm rooms and we would hang out and talk about the military. So I got a little bit of information. Um, and I just thought about, you know what, hey, why don't I just go to the recruiting station and see what options there are? So she came back and she says, have you figured it out? And I said, well, give me till tomorrow and I'll give you my answer. Okay, so the next day I ended up going to the recruiting station. Um, got a lot of information, but I knew if I joined infantry, my mother would kill me. So I had to find something else, and I came across combat engineer. Yeah. Sounded interesting to me, but uh, the description for combat engineer was building fortifications and clearing minefields. So I was like, okay, that, that sounds pretty Clearing cool. minefields, awesome. <laughs> But uh, by the time I joined the military, that description went away because yeah. that description was mainly for uh, World War II and yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So you, uh, your buddy who was in the dorms with you, he had kind of already joined the the military, joined the army. Is that the timeline? 
yeah, he became um, infantry and he became a mortarman. Oh yeah. So obviously it, this, and this is the guy who lived in the dorms with you, right? In C4. Yeah. yeah this has my, been my best friend since yeah. fourth grade. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I did a little bit of research on you. Your uncle had a role to play in you considering combat engineers, right? Um, yeah, my uncle was a Vietnam vet. I had two uncles, but one that lived closer, uh, I never really had a relationship I had the entire time that I was alive. And because he always worked nights, he was a Chicago cop. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was in the military, so I decided, hey, you know, I'm let me go over and ask him a few questions. And I ended up actually finding out he was a combat engineer in Vietnam. Um, so he gave me some insight on the basic training, which is at Fort Leonard Wood. Yeah. Um, and just gave me just rough ideas on what to do. And one of the big things I asked him was, is, um, do you think I should join? And he says, I will never answer that question. Because I know if I tell you to join, your mother will kill me. <laughs> if you die, I do not want that on my conscience. Yeah. So yeah. Tell you. And I actually took on that philosophy after I left the military with yeah. people asking me if I should join. Yeah. So all I could all I could tell them is my experience and you make your decision. Do you remember what he described being a combat engineer in Vietnam was like? Like he kind of explained a little bit of what that job was like in, in, in time of war, right? Yeah. So uh, he, he mainly worked with the aces. So like they're kind of like bulldozers uh-huh. in the military. Um, but he always told me that he would have rather go to Vietnam than Iraq. He says the, he's like, I like the, the jungle, the open plain, the 3D battlefield is not for me. Yeah. So I was always kind of like, well, I think I might have wanted to go to Vietnam yeah. rather than Iraq too. But I was like, yeah. Yeah. So for those that don't recognize that term, the 3D battlefield in Vietnam, it's you and the enemy. You're here. The enemy's over there. That's and and the jungle is also trying to kill you. Those are the things that you have to keep in mind. Whereas the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan very different. Because you can be hit from the air, from the ground, from the left, from the right, from the front, from the rear. You get, you have to be aware of everything, right? Is that kind of what he was describing for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, what time frame was it that you went to talk to an army recruiter about becoming a combat engineer? Um, it was only after a couple months because with school would end in around uh, April or May. And I ended up joining the military uh, at the beginning of July. What year? Oh, five. Okay. Um, so, I'm, but, I'm, I'm asking this question because for those that don't remember what this was, was like in 2005, before you went to the recruiter, the U.S. is involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's kind of a surge of sorts that's starting in Iraq. But by joining the military, you are virtually saying in 2005, I'm going to war. Sign me up and send me to war. Everybody who joined every branch of the military was in essence saying, I know I'm going to go to war. Is that true? Yeah, because you end up getting the national defense ribbon. Yeah. So that's meaning that you joined during wartime. Yeah. I, I needed to point that out because there were periods and in fact, we're kind of there again as a country where you join the military, maybe you're going to go to war, maybe you won't. But in 2005, there was no question in your mind when you went to a recruiter's office, you're saying, send me to war. 
Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, they were. They asked me if I want to do active reserve or National Guard, and they were telling me that mostly reserve and National Guard units are the ones that get deployed the most, rather than active. Um, really, I, I kind of believe that, and <laughs> I could actually see that when I was deployed, that was true. But uh, being a combat engineer, our job was the most demanding. So yeah. a lot of the combat engineer units were getting deployed and there weren't a lot of us. Yeah. Where did, uh, uh, okay, so you sign up, you show up at a recruiter's office. They talk to you about being a combat engineer. I mean, I'm kind of summarizing this part of the story. Your uncle has already described what this was like for you in war. And you know, by going to the military in 2005, you're going to war. Tell us about um, preparing for basic training, because it sounds like although you were an athlete, you were not necessarily ready for basic training when you signed up. Uh, no. Uh, what is it? They call it what, like the freshman 15 you put on in mm-hmm. college. I put up freshman like 50 or 60. 50 <laughs> and, or uh, 60 pounds of weight in that freshman year of college, right? So that's a lot of drink. So yeah, that's what I was doing. Um, but yeah, I, so I joined at 19. I was, I'm about six, three, uh, at that age by the military, I was required to be like 180, 185 pounds. And at the time I was about 280. Wow. You were a hundred pounds over the, the, the maximum allowable weight for your height when you joined the army. So if you're over the weight limit before you go into basic training, they send you to something that's like, it's called like fat camp or whatever, before you even go down the trail. Um, but I was fortunate enough. I didn't have to go there because there was a rotation for combat engineers happening when I got there. So the drill sergeants there were like, you know what, just go, you'll, you'll lose the weight when you go there. Uh, yeah. Basic training that's will what take I, care of that. Right. That's what ended up happening. I ended up losing almost about 60, 70 pounds in basic training. Holy smokes. I can't imagine what those first few weeks of basic training felt like when you're trying to pull an extra 70 or 80 pounds along when, uh, with the rest of the guys that were in basic with you. Especially when the first like two weeks of basic training is marching drills and rucking. Uh, I was dead to the world. Most days, I think the first month was hell for me. Yeah. Until you get to the rifle training. I recognize this. I hope the people that are listening to this episode recognize this. It takes a lot of mental toughness to carry that extra weight into basic training and to have to lug it around until you start to drop the weight and be able to keep up with all of the fast, you know, skinny guys in basic. I was, I I consider myself a little bit more fortunate because I played sports all my life that I was used to coaches yelling at my face and get under my skin. So the drill sergeant aspect of it wasn't that tough on me, whereas some guys would kind of actually mentally break down in the middle of these things. Um, I I got called every name in the book by the drill sergeants. It never really bothered me. But uh, it does take a lot of mental uh, strength to get through it, though. I was just going to say it uh, it's been many years since I went through basic training, but I still remember a drill sergeant being two inches away from my nose while veins are popping out of his forehead and he's screaming at the top of his lungs to get me to do what I'm supposed to do. I think everybody who's gone through boot camp or basic remembers those days. 
And um, it, also, some of the drill sergeants were a lot shorter than me, so I was like, since I was six three, so that be a lot of times where it's like, uh, "Hey, her, I heard you wanted to kick my ass later." <laughs> like I said, so no such thing. Yeah, yeah. But so like getting under the skin. It, uh, it was fun, but it never. Yeah. So when you finish basic, what happens with you next? Um, so since I was, uh, you get to pick your duty station. Um, I ended up picking Germany. Really? Um, so, Why Germany? Uh, I have family that's from Germany, and um, I've been there a number of times when I was a young kid, and uh, I just like the atmosphere, and um, I really didn't want to go to Fort Hood. Um, I didn't want to go to some of the other bases that required combat engineers, yeah. and um, I decided to go there, and I got uh, it got chosen for me for me to go. Yeah. Well, you must have done pretty well in basic if they let you choose your duty assignment. Your first gig was in for I mean, in Germany, um, where a guy can get into a lot of trouble. Um, but how long have you been in the army before your unit gets ready to go to Iraq? Um, it was about a year, but when I got there, they were saying we're getting ready to to deploy. But the thing was is that in two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Um, they were closing a lot of the bases yeah. in Germany. Yeah. So there were combat engineers in the area, so they all consolidated them in Schweinfurt, Germany, which is where I was stationed at. Uh -huh. um, so it took a little bit of time to get all that organized. So soldiers from bases, um, most of the recruits were out of basic training. I was actually kind of the first wave that came in. Yeah. Um, so got a little bit of a head start, but we kept getting delayed. Um, months and months and there was other things going on uh, that I didn't really agree on. Higher leadership was actually trying to push us to go because of, you know, military politics sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah. So add that aspect of it, but yeah, it wasn't until, uh, yeah, two, uh, 2006 is finally deployed. Did your unit, had your unit already been to combat previously before you got there? Um, yeah, they were, I think the last time was, um, it wasn't to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, uh -huh. so, uh, but a lot of the guys that were there did deploy beforehand, so it was just only maybe a handful of the yeah. leadership. Well, I, I'm, I'm asking this question. You already know why, but for the listeners, Eric, uh, when you show up, you're a brand new guy and you show up around a bunch of people that have a lot of combat experience, they have some very high expectations on purpose because if you can't meet those expectations in training, you may get yourself or them killed in war. So I totally know what that's like um, when you show up to a unit that has some guys with a lot of combat experience. Yeah. Hey, I got to know, um, I hope you'll describe for us, you choose, intentionally choose a career path in the military where you're going to be around demolitions and in some cases disarming bombs. You got to tell us what was going through your mind when you said, yeah, I, I want to do that in the military. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so normally what we would disarm were um, like landmines. So in basic training, we would have like this big huge sandbox that would be in front of us and it would be like an anti-personnel mine or an anti-tank mine. So we were kind of trained to like move the sand without uh -huh. disturbing it, 
catching the mouse traps that might be underneath it. Um, it's not really a mouse trap, but it's like a, if you try to move it, then it goes off. Yeah. Um, so uh, in basic training, if it did go off, the cloud of smoke would puff up in your face. So in the classroom, it was fun, but also in the back of our minds, we had to realize that, yeah, we were doing something pretty dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of, I know now I see it, that also takes a little bit of crazy to do what we yeah. did. But um, at the time, it was really just a job and it was something that we actually enjoyed. Yeah. Um, everybody's sitting there listening to you and saying, oh, that sounds like so much fun. You got to play in a big sandbox while you're in basic training and you're thinking, yeah, and if I made a mistake, the big puff of smoke means that I blew myself and all of my buddies up um, in basic training, right? The, the other part of it was is that we're also called breachers. So we would make explosives that would uh, get into things. So we'd build explosives that knock down doors, uh -huh. walls, um, anything that we needed to get into, we would design things to build it. So uh, that was the other fun part of it, uh, that we were able to uh, make explosives to do cool things. Yeah. For anyone who's been in the military, you recognize this word. But for those of you who have not served in the military, breachers are very courageous warriors, all branches of the military. In fact, Eric, fun fact, I used to be a breacher when I was an enlisted guy in special operations, and I spent several years as a breacher. Um, and if you don't mind, what I, I have a little segment that I try to do during this podcast um, each episode, it's called my high five. And when I was preparing for this interview with you, I was thinking, I got to talk with Eric about what it was like to be a breacher and dealing with demolitions or explosives for your duty. That was kind of your, uh, one of your jobs. Um, and what I want to do is list like my top five, um, things that I learned as a breacher in the Ranger regiment when I was a sergeant. And I want you to throw in a thought or two at the end, if you don't mind. So here we go. You ready? Top five lessons I learned as a breacher uh, while serving in the military. One is demolitions or explosives is unforgiving. If you make a mistake, it will kill you. It will kill the people around you. You really cannot make a mistake. There's no room for mistakes as a breacher in the military. Number uh, two on my list is there's math formulas for everything. Do you remember this from basic? Like they would give you a math formula on how much demo it takes to blow up a tree or how much demolitions you use to cut through an I-beam of steel or what do you use to blow a hole in the road? And always there is this variable in the demolitions math formula using the letter P. You remember what the letter P used to stand for when you didn't really know the math formula? Man, you're... I remember the P, but I don't remember yeah, what it so stood for. In my circles, if you didn't do the math right, P just stood for plenty. If you think there needs oh, to be three pounds, then throw four pounds in there. Put plenty in there. We know that that will blow up what it's supposed to blow up. So P never really was supposed to be plenty, but we use the word P to describe plenty of blow, uh, plenty of explosives. Remember that formula? Yeah. The, also, the other thing was is that uh, you could ever you can never have too much tail. Yeah. So. If you didn't quite know, put a little more extra tail on it just so you don't get. I, I'm, I'm thinking about all of the listeners right now that are saying, I wish I had the chance to play around with explosives and put a tail on it. And if you don't know what the tail is, the tail is usually 
uh, time fuse that gives you amount of that that burns for a specific amount of time before it sets the explosives off. And the time fuse is what allows you to get away from the charge. Um, I also learned um, doing some breaching in the Ranger Regiment that it is a very imprecise form of busting down doors or blowing up obstacles. And sometimes you think it's going to just blow a bolt off of the door. And in fact, it blows the whole bolt off. Sometimes you think it's going to blow a door open and it knocks an entire wall down and it's imprecise. So you, you, you just got to kind of do your best to, to, uh, uh, make a good guess on how much this charge needs. Right. Yeah. We, um, we came across a vehicle one time that we thought it was a V bid and, um, the trunk was closed. So, we put like a tiny little sliver of C4 on the trunk, um, detonated. We ended up blowing up the whole car. <laughs> so uh, a little bit too much C4. Yeah. So that was one of the funny if, stories that we had. If you're listening and you don't recognize the acronym VBID, it essentially means a vehicle that's been turned into a bomb. And they're just waiting to blow the vehicle up when a, a supply convoy or somebody else goes next to it. That's essentially what the acronym means. You put a little charge next to that uh, vehicle, and yeah, the vehicle is going to turn into a giant mushroom cloud and kill everybody we, we, around. We had our interpreter was saying, "I thought you would just wanted to open up the trunk." I said, yeah, but that's not what happened. Yeah, so, so kind of had to stay there and wait till it died down because we couldn't let it just sit there. Of course, so, yeah. yeah. A little funny story. All right, number four on my list. Um, more than once I created the demo charge. I set the demo charge off. We're all waiting for the charge to go off and it doesn't go off. And you know, this sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. And what I learned as a breacher is if you rig that charge, you go fix the charge, which means you have to go up to that explosive that could go off at any second. And you have to go up there and look at what you did wrong and fix what you did wrong. And I distinctly remember walking up to my charge thinking, I hope that I didn't get the timing wrong. And this thing is going to blow up right when I'm standing over the top of it. You rig it, you fix it was one of the lessons that I learned as a breacher. Yeah. And especially in training, you had to wait 30 minutes Yeah, uh, just in case it did. I actually had that happen to me where I had the, the M80 pole mm -hmm. and it didn't go off. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And I ended up looking at the, at the, at the M80 and there's like two safety pins. Mm -hmm. I only pulled one safety pin and I actually pulled the pin through all the way out of it. Yeah. yeah. So, but the pin was still in yeah. there yeah. and I'm, Oh, that's what I did wrong. Yeah. So, but we had to wait 30 minutes in order to go down range to get the charge. Yeah. The M80 is like a fuse igniter. Think of it like dropping or pulling the spoon on a, a grenade or pulling, um, you know, a, uh, setting the fuse on a firework. That's essentially what it is that starts the time fuel burning. Last lesson that I learned, number five on my list, is don't look at the charge. And for most people, this is not going to make sense. But for breachers, they know that if you can see the charge, here's the language that I used to use, that charge can see you. And when it blows up, whatever debris it can throw is going to hit you. So set the charge and move away from it in a position where you can't see it before it blows up. Because if you can see it, you're probably going to get hit by debris, if not get killed by the charge itself. So don't look at it. Just wait for it to go off. Those are my high five lessons I learned as a breacher in the Army.
Those are good lessons. Yeah. Any anything you want to um, add to this list? Because you spent a, a day or two, a minute or two as a breacher. Anything you learned along the way? Uh, just uh, those stories that I told you. Those were my uh, mess up experiences as <laughs> as a breacher. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, so yeah, we're like, we're in Germany, so we would train up in the up in the hills and up in the mountains and the forests, and they would give us all these charges they give us bangalores they gave us all these types of things so we just go out in the field and we just detonate them yeah that was like the fun part of training yeah the famous bangalore torpedoes that have been around since world war ii and getting a chance to blow one of those two up you don't get those very often so no. believe it or not it's fun to blow up some explosives that's been around since world war ii all right eric let's talk about combat and let's talk about Iraq before we even talk about your first deployment to Iraq in 2006 I gotta say and I do this for anybody who's been in the military not just those that have served overseas thank you man thanks for being willing to sign up and and join the military when our country was at war thanks for being willing to go overseas and to defend our freedom you you as well yeah Let's talk about that first deployment. You went to Iraq in 2006. Can you describe how things were and where you were and what you kind of what your job was over there? Uh, yeah, we weren't quite sure where we ended up going. As I was saying before, higher military politics, um, they wanted us to go. So we ended up going to Kuwait, where the staging area uh -huh. is. We ended up being there for about a month. And that's really not normal. Usually there for only a yeah, couple of days yeah. go to your station. Um, they finally told us, Hey, you're going to go to Baghdad. Uh, so we went to Camp Liberty, which is the big base right next to the Baghdad airport. Mm -hmm. And we told us that we were going to be doing route clearance. And uh, we had no idea what it was. We never really trained for it in Germany. Um, so we had, had to go a couple of missions. I think it was like a two or three week period where we piggybacked on another unit. Yeah. Uh, once we got the hang of it, we took, we take over. Yeah. Let me pause for just a second. Um, for people who don't understand what this feels like, you just showed up into combat. You know that at any moment you couldn't be placed in a life or death circumstance and not just you, but the other warriors that are depending on you for doing your job but you're sent over to Iraq and asked to do a mission that you've never really trained for, never done before. Tell everybody what on-the-job training in combat feels like those first couple of times going out with another unit. First time I went out, our convoy got hit. So it was... Uh, out of the frying pan <laughs> and into the fire, right? Yeah, so I, at the time I was kind of like, wow, really? But as I got older and in my career, I'm like, I'm glad it happened right out of the gate because uh -huh. um, I knew what to expect. And uh, it was eye opening, uh, but it just made us uh, more aware of what we had to do and what we should do. And um, we had to evolve over time because the enemy was evolving, right. too. What does the job of a route? What does route clearance look like in Iraq in 2006? <clears throat> So we were given these South African vehicles. They're called RG31s. Um, they're very large trucks, and uh, they were more bomb resistant than your regular Humvee, which 
<laughs> I can no, say now. I, I noticed that you said more, but not completely <laughs> bomb resistant. I picked up on that. Yeah. Maybe a smidge, but yeah. that's, uh, and we would use these vehicles. So we would roll out with maybe three of them, but our main vehicle was a Buffalo, which is a very large vehicle that had a hydraulic crane on the front mm-hmm. of it. This hydraulic crane could maybe hold about 250 pounds. So we would use this crane to dig in the ground or move debris to see if there were actually IEDs around. Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize is that, I mean, here we have clean streets, you know, there's clear everything. Baghdad, there's many landfills in the side of the road. Yeah. There's trash bags, thousands of trash bags, tires, cones. Uh, Broken down vehicles, basically, that, yeah. all, all, through, all across the road, yeah. So what we ended up having to do was memorize these trash piles. Um, And the only way we could do that is every mission, we would go out five miles an hour down the road and look out the window. And memorizing these trash piles was a big deal because we would notice if something got moved. Uh, And we would have like VIPs come with us, like people that were just fine to see. And um, they were like, Hey, look at that trash pile. Let's look at that. I'm like, no, nah, that trash pile has been the same way for the last two months. <laughs> There's nothing yeah. there. So we would actually, if that trash pile was disturbed anyway, we would look at it. And nine times out of 10, there would be an IED there. And that's just what we had to do. Yeah. Just a, a mental awareness to be able to say, I know that the trash pack is trash pile has been there. I know that that trash pile still looks the same and hasn't been disturbed because as you said, a route could have a hundred or a thousand potential roadside bombs on it. And you got to know, yeah, that thing has been there and it's been like that all along. Wait a second. This is different. Something is different. Don't even know exactly what's different. We should go investigate that. That's kind of what they were asked, what you, you were being asked to do clearing routes, correct? Correct. Um, how long did you spend in that first deployment in Iraq? We were actually supposed to spend nine months. Um, when that nine month came around, they said, uh, no, we're going to extend you to a year. So they're like, all right, I understand it. But at that time they were extending a lot of units. Yeah. It was getting kind of, kind of rough. So when that 12 month mark was coming, they're like, uh, shouldn't we be training other people to take over for us? And they're like, no, we're going to stay another month, another month and a half. So we're like, okay, we're going over 12. Yeah. That month and a half came. They're like, oh, we're going to extend you again another month and a half. I ended up spending 15 months in Baghdad. And it was getting worrisome because at the time there was an Alaskan unit uh-huh. that got deployed for 12 months went back to Alaska. They got off the plane. There was a general or I believe it was a general at the bottom of the tarmac says, you have to get back on the plane. You're going back to Baghdad or back to Iraq. And they had to end up going, they had to go for another three months. And I believe they lost two soldiers during that three month period. And it was families were upset and we were thinking the same thing that was going to happen to us. And when we did go back to Germany after that 15 months, there was a colonel at the bottom of the tarmac and we're like, there's no uh-huh. way this guy is going to tell uh-huh. us. And the words out of his mouth was welcome home. Yeah. So we we're kind of a little bit relieved. Like, Oh God, yeah. <laughs> imagine I want to go back on that plane and go back there. 
I went through similar circumstances. We're not going to talk about that, but I went on a, a deployment to combat that got extended multiple times. And I remember how brutal that was on the families back at home who thought their husbands or fathers, sons, mothers, and daughters would be home by Christmas, but they learned they're not going to be home by Christmas. We don't even know if they're going to be home by Easter. That is, it's brutal on the family. But I remember what that felt like to the guys and gals that I served with while I was overseas. And for them, for most of them, it just, it was like a punch in the gut that took the wind out of you. Every time that that date got pushed back, it, it just hurt, hurt more. And you know, you felt like you were never going to get out. Yeah. yeah. Didn't like, do anything about it. like not, not only am I going to spend the rest of my life here, I'm going to die here because my only, my, my hope of getting out of here nine months and we're getting close to the nine months and maybe I'll survive. Okay. Now it's going to be a year. Now it's 15 months. I don't, I'm, I'm never going to make it out of Iraq. I'm going to, I'm going to die here. Um, I know the numbers because I did some research on you, but tell everybody what that, uh, I tell everybody about the number of IEDs that you found during that deployment to Iraq and how many you were able to disarm. Yeah. In that 15 month period, we, our unit alone found 126 IEDs. That's not including the ones that have blown up on us or the fake ones we found. Yeah, I want that number to sink into the listeners right now. You went out there and every one of those 126 IEDs that you found and disarmed or or blew up, you saved one, two, 10, 20 people from every one of those 126 roadside bombs that you found while you were over in Iraq, but you found a couple of them the hard way. Let's describe those for a minute. Uh, yeah, we uh, ended up losing four soldiers during our first deployment and uh, a couple more to serious injury as well. Yeah. Um, Christmas 2006, would you describe what that mission was like? Something that's, lived in my mind every day for the past it's been 15 years it was it's been 15 years this past year um that was the day that i felt the most expendable in my life um a lot of things went wrong that day and some say we shouldn't have even been out there christmas day uh -huh. because no unit was out that day in the whole theater, not one single unit was out, but they said that we had to go out. And we kind of protested. It was like, why are we going to go out there if we're not going to make the road safe for any unit that's out there right. at the moment? So a lot more politics come into play during that, too. It's one of the things that um, I expressed in my book that no matter what job you're in, there's always going to be a higher up that's, I guess, wants advancement or to look good, but it's not them that's doing work. So it was, um, it was a hard time for me during that day and that mission. Yeah, I don't want to make this any harder for you than it already is, but can you just kind of describe what happened or, or, or what was the toll on your unit that for that mission on Christmas Day 2006? Um. So it was a night mission, and uh, we were in the northeast part of Baghdad, uh, and it, it was a hot spot area for IEDs that we would find. Um, 
and we ended up coming across an EFP. Um, <clears throat> describe, is, can you, I was going to say, can you describe that really briefly for everybody? Um, yeah, so what it is is it's an IED that has a laser on it that detects heat. And so hence something hot passes it like our engines mm -hmm. to our vehicles. Um, that would set off the IED. Uh, but what these EFPs had were these copper cylinders that were about 12 inches in diameter. Uh, normally, these EFPs would be very uh, disguised. So what this EFP was is that these insurgents took a chunk of the curb, mm -hmm. took it out, and molded this EFP to look like the curb, and they placed it wow. back into the curb. So... At the time, we couldn't. We didn't even yeah. notice it. It it's it just looks like the curb, um, and it ended up hitting the front vehicle. Uh, I was on mission. I was the gunner for my LT, which was the second vehicle. Mm -hmm. All all you remember is when an IED goes off, is you see the flash of light, and then you hear the boom, and <laughs> it's only like a second later, but. It feels like forever yeah. between that light and the boom. And when that light goes off and it's dark, you can notice it. And it's like, oh, man, we just got hit. And then you hear the boom. Uh, we ended up losing three soldiers uh, because uh, the EFP, one of them ended up going through the passenger, uh, went through him, and then hit the driver in the face. Yeah. yeah. So our driver, he was killed instantly. Um, and then the gunner, he, another EFP went through and he ended up falling out of his hatch. But wow. the pressure of this EFP actually compressed the vehicle. And these RGs were very roomy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 6'3 and I barely had enough wiggle room to get through there. So when the gunner fell down, he ended up being compressed and he was actually trapped um, and the vehicle would eventually fill with smoke. Um, usually when these vehicles would get hit, the brakes would lock up and it was always our job. If it got hit, we had a tool that would unlock the brakes uh -huh. just in case we had moved this vehicle. Well, fortunately that night the brakes wouldn't unlock. So we tried to get the vehicle out of the kill zone um, we ended up getting the fire out that was on the vehicle because one of the EFPs went through the gas tank and hit um, one of the squad leaders in the back. It ended up hitting through his arm and in his face. Um, and uh, we ended up getting the fire out. But as we were moving the vehicle, uh, all the friction and everything yeah. and all the gasoline ended up igniting the vehicle back yeah. up. Uh, we were able to get the driver, um, I'm sorry, we were able to get the, the TC out, so the passenger. Uh -huh. uh, he was actually skinny enough to get through the vent, the narrow corridor that it is in this vehicle. And um, But his chest was so compressed that uh, from the explosion that he couldn't breathe and he suffered from other injuries yeah. as well. He ended up passing. Um, the driver, we couldn't even get him out because the he was so locked in there and the compression he couldn't even get through the corridor 
the gunner, he ended up getting trapped. As I said before, he ended up getting stuck. We couldn't get him out, so he ended up dying from his wounds and also smoke inhalation. Yeah. Uh, the squad leader in the back, he was able to get out. He ended up uh, having a hole through his forearm and lost vision in his right eye, uh, but he was able to survive the blast. Yeah. Uh, and other thing, a lot of other things happened. We tried to have recovery come out and get us. They were actually refusing to come out because being Christmas, they're like, uh-huh. we're not going to come out. Um, it took a lot of convincing. They finally came out. <laughs> they gave us an excuse that their uh, flatbed broke down at the gate. So they couldn't come and get us. They needed recovery to recover them. <laughs> it was kind of like, wow. So you're telling me we're stuck out here. Uh, and we ended up calling our unit. They wouldn't send it out because we were so far away uh, the only people that were actually with us was a black hawk or a, i'm sorry an apache unit uh-huh. that was out of um i think they're of uh, anaconda that would come and provide security with us uh, but at times they only could be out for there yeah. for a little bit yeah. they got to go to a different station yeah um, so we ended up being there eight almost six hours by ourselves without being able to call anybody or come out. It wasn't until early in the morning, our first sergeant uh, who uh, started waking people up and uh-huh. said, uh, get your shit and you're coming with me. And some people, the listeners might not know, if you want to roll out the gate, you actually have to have orders in your hand that you could leave the gate. <laughs> he went up to the gate and the gatekeepers are the Ugandan uh-huh. army. And he told him, he's like, get the fuck out of my way. I'm going helping out my guys. He left without orders, took out all the recovery with us, and finally came out with us yeah. and came at us. Um, it was just a long night. And uh, one of the things that I remember is because we ran out of fire extinguishers. Yeah. So that second fire that was happening in the vehicle, we couldn't put that fire out. So we actually had to sit there and watch two of our buddies burn in the mm-hmm. middle of the, of the vehicle and it wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago i finally actually said this that i still remember the smell mm-hmm. the smell of just flesh burning and it still sticks with me today yeah. that that smell and that was probably the hardest thing that i had to actually deal with that we couldn't do anything for our guys because they were trapped in there and we we didn't have any more fire extinguishers to help them. And just being able to sit there was kind of the worst torture that you could probably actually go through. Yeah. And that's one of the most memorable things I remember. Eric, you said that happened December, uh, Christmas, 2006. It's been 15 years at the time that we're recording this. And you've said you haven't forgot it. Um, I'll just tell you, honestly, man, um, my first time watching the movie Black Hawk Down when I was sitting in a theater and kind of this was an exclusive premiere for the guys that were there when the opening credits started and the the movie began to play in the first 30 seconds immediately the first thing that came back to my memory was the smells of the firefight in Afghanistan and to this day I don't forget those smells There's a lot of other things about that firefight that I remember from Black Hawk Down, but the smells are probably the most powerful memory that sticks with me 
um, the very first time that I watched that movie. And honestly, even when it comes on cable TV and I'm flipping through the channels, I can sometimes smell the smells from um, Somalia and Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. But man, I, I just want to say, um, I can't imagine what this felt like to spend hours watching your buddies who in combat can quickly become closer to you than your blood relatives, watching them, listening to them scream and watching them burn alive and knowing that there's nothing you can do about it. And the helplessness that goes along with that, man, my heart goes out to you right now. It took uh, the, the, the hardest part afterwards was the families get a record of what happened. Yeah. Well, I found out that it was just a one, it was just one sentence. After that incident, we had to give our eyewitness report of uh -huh. the incident. And I heard not, none of the stuff was ever told to the families. They were just given one word sentence, uh, death by IAD EFP. Yeah. I was kind of mad about that. And that was one of the reasons why, another reason why I wanted to write the book because the families had no idea what actually happened. Yeah, I need to talk about this book, but before we get there, you it it took you 10 years to tell this story. You were you you held this in for 10 years and anybody who's listening to your story right now should be able to understand why you would struggle with some mental health and PTSD related things after having watched well, after 126 IEDs and being blown up multiple times, but this incident alone why after 10 years did you start to feel like, okay, I'm ready to, or I need to write this story? Those things happening in my life were, um, I was constantly thinking about it and I wasn't paying attention to things around me. Um, it happened uh, December of 19. I actually had a full-on breakdown in my kitchen where I just let out all the emotions that I had from both deployments and felt and the pain that I was feeling. I just let all the emotions out. I felt a hundred times better yeah. just by doing that. And as weeks went on, I was accepting. I was more able to tell my story. Uh, I was doing videos on how some of the incidences that happened to me during my deployments, um, but I figured my videos wouldn't get the message that I wanted. Yeah. So, you know what, maybe I should just write. I never thought about writing a book ever in my life. Well, you're answering the question I was going to ask next. So yeah, why, <laughs> and, why uh, write it? Just kept, I just started And the more and more I wrote, the better I felt. And I knocked out everything I wrote in like a month and a half. Wow. I, the more, the better I felt, I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to leave anything out. I, I'm not going to regret anything that I write in here. I'm going to tell every single feeling, every single thought that I had, what actually happened. And if someone wants to come after me for what I wrote, well, then you're going to have to answer for what you did. Right. And after I wrote the book, I had people come up to me and try to friend me on Facebook uh -huh. or whatever. People that I've never met in my life that I knew were in my unit. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to give you the time of day. Yeah. If you want to say something, go say something, but you're going to have to answer yeah. for what you, your decisions that you yeah. made. Right. 
I didn't hold anything back and I left all my emotions in so I don't have to care memories anymore. And I I already know this. It takes a lot of courage as a warrior to do what you do because warriors are trained to stuff their emotions in, keep it to themselves, don't spill it out to anybody else. Um, and that's not always, in some cases, that works temporarily. That never works long term. It's not always the most healthy, especially especially emotionally healthy way of handling what you went through. So the courage that it takes, not just to write a story, but to write the tell-all story about what you really felt like and how you, how this impacted you, man, that took a lot of courage. And I want to tell you, I'm proud of you for doing that. I hope listeners just picked up on the fact that you didn't go to Afghan or Iraq once you went a second time in 2008 and your experiences, I think I'm, I'm going to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm going to speak for you. Your experiences have stayed with you to this day. Is that right? experiences and I actually don't regret any of it so it's 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 what made me who I am today so I really can't take it back yeah and I I have said the same thing uh to people when they have asked me about combat um but I really wanted to focus the reason I asked that question is so that I could focus the attention on how you're helping others now one of the reasons I, I said I'm proud of you is because sometimes a warrior has to start to open up before others around them feel comfortable opening up. So you're, you're helping other guys and gals that have gone through combat like you struggle through this. Can you just describe how you help people? Well, really not how you help, but what do you say to people who are struggling with some mental health issues or some combat related stress? Uh-huh. A couple of years ago, I actually went to one of these resource centers that they have and did some uh, therapy. But at the time, I wasn't ready. I was feeling nauseous telling my story. Uh-huh. Like I was getting sick. Um, I couldn't do it anymore. So you have to actually start somewhere. Um, but I'm more fortunate enough being in Chicago, being in a bigger city. So the resource centers are more readily available to people that live in my area and soldiers. But the problem is, is that a lot of these soldiers are from small town, middle of nowhere places that their resource center might be two, three hours away. And don't feel like they want to go that far to actually start getting help. Um, I do my research now and I find websites that will actually tell you where your nearest resource yeah. center is yeah. rather than uh, what the army likes to do is give you a hotline number and you're on the hotline number for does know how long or you make an appointment at the VA and it takes you six, seven minutes just to get an appointment. Yeah. These resource centers that actually do help and a lot of soldiers don't utilize them. Yeah. Well, to wrap this thing up, I want people to get connected with you. So if they want to pick up your book, the title of the book is A Bomb Hunter's Story. If they want to pick up that book, where can they find it? Uh, it is on Amazon for paperback and Kindle as well. Okay. And if they want to know more about you, how do they find out more about you? Um, I just recently started having like a TikTok. So I do All a lot right. of Look jokes. at you. Way to go. So also... Um, 
I came across a uh, M998 for sale. Uh huh. So um, that was purchased. So a lot of the videos is of me with the Humvee yeah. and driving around or trying to get on the lighter side. So like the some of the pranks that they would put on enlisted uh-huh. soldiers. So go over that stuff too. Yeah. And I see a lot of it. It's mostly former enlisted. They remember these things. And for the laugh, I remember that. Yeah. It brings, you know, the camaraderie of it all. So I try to bring a little bit on the light side to it. Yeah. Just do sort of funny things. Hey, uh, for those of you who are listening. on that, a TikTok is uh, Sapper720. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was about to ask. So for those of you who are listening, we're going to put links to this. If you look at the notes to Eric's book, you can find it on Amazon, but it's called A Bomb Hunter Story, and we'll give you a link to that. But we'll also put a link to his TikTok. I'm glad to see that uh, Eric the Sapper is on TikTok, and we'll put a link to his TikTok account out there. Eric, I said it already. I want to say it again. Thank you for being willing to be a combat engineer and to go overseas and to defend our freedom but I want to take this now a step further and say thanks for being willing to try to help others who have gone through something like you've gone through and you're trying to help them get healthy on the other side of it, man. Uh, thank you for having me and the opportunity to tell my story. Yeah, it's great to talk to you today. See you around, man. Boom. Eric's story is so powerful. And I don't mean just a guy who joins the army, goes to Iraq and disarms 126 roadside bombs talking about the courage that it takes to write a book and to be brutally honest with the world about what you went through and how it still affects you. Man, I hope you've been encouraged by Eric's story today. You know, I have a resource. If you if you're going through some tough stuff right now, or maybe you're struggling with something that you've went through in the past, I have a resource called the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. And that survival guide is for anybody to get you through the tough things of life. If you want that survival guide, it's totally free. All you got to do is just go to unbeatablearmy.com. Now, if you're watching this episode for the first time, would you go ahead and subscribe? Or maybe you've caught us before. Would you go ahead and rate us on social media and follow us, will you? You can find us pretty much everywhere. Just go to at unbeatablepodcast.com and follow one of our social media channels. I want to say thanks for being with us today. See you next week.